Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we are going to be talking with a friend of the podcast. This will be his third time on the podcast, uh, the writer Stephen Marsh. Uh, welcome, Stephen. Hey, how you well, doing? Okay, very well, very well. So we have so many things uh, to talk about today. Fairies, refugees, virtual reality, pop singers. Uh, you're writing on everything lately, it seems. Civil wars, yeah. celebrities, you know, all of that stuff. But what we were talking about just before we went live, uh, which I fascinated, is Neil Stevenson's novel Snow Crash and uh, why virtual reality hasn't taken off. Uh, so why do you think you, you were really excited about this? And why do you think it hasn't taken off the way people thought it would? Well, see, you know, I, I guess that we were talking about like these hard science fiction things you read where it's like people just assume that people are going to be swallowed by technology, you know, that they're just going to be kind of like taken up by it. Um, but I think one of the things that's really interesting about, about tech is that people really want buttons. They don't really want to be like, it's this kind of brutal thing. Like, you know, I used to go to VR festivals and I really found them totally fascinating. And I, I thought there was so much potential there, but you know, you go to these VR, like there's a VR theater room in Toronto that you can go to and you can pay money to go inside and no, it's empty. People are still going to see like once upon a time in Hollywood rather than like experiencing the feeling of living in a jet. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's one of those really interesting questions about why. And like, also, I, I mean, to me, it's the same reason why, um, Google glass never took off is that, you know, people don't really want to feel out of control with their technology. They want technology to give them that feeling of control. It's like, it's, it's will to power. Right. And when you're in VR, you actually feel quite powerless. Mm-hmm. Right. And, Google Glass, I think you actually also feel kind of like powerless. Um, and I think we all kind of feel powerless in the face of technology. And there is this natural resistance to it. Yeah. Um, that's just that's just my theory. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I think I, I know you're you've got a you're you're not crazy about Black Mirror, but the the new season, which just consists of three episodes, uh, one of them I was telling you about the the last one with Miley Cyrus, it is just. It's almost as if somebody read your article about the Japanese sort of holographic pop star and then wrote an epi- a Black Mirror episode based on that. It, it's right. it will be 
the the hair will be sticking up on your arms within five minutes of the episode because it's directly Miley Cyrus is a famous pop star, and they the people the sort of the the corporate people running her they realize that it's it's inefficient to have a real person as a pop star because they can you know everything you mentioned in the article they can like let you down by kind of changing or saying something racist or getting canceled or getting you know getting and in the they have to deal with the fact that she's a real person rather than just a product and that becomes a problem i'm not going to give away the episode but that becomes a problem and they realize it's much better if they can just make a holograph holographic like image of her that is programmed with all of her songs and all of her personality and then just sell that rather than the real person and you can just completely separate there, all ties isn't it's, there a, a one where they have a politician who's like a a, a teddy bear like a mascot <laughs> yeah I mean, it's sort of the same yes. idea uh but it's way right, like way they, more intense in this one like way more intense but but in that same uh, season the first episode which I'm actually using in one of my classes this semester, it, it really delves into the virtual reality thing. So essentially what it is, is it's set a little bit in the future and they have these video games. Like Kimber, like we played when we were kids, like Mortal Kombat and stuff like, get over yes. here. Remember that one? <laughs> like we, like, put right, right. And everything right. like, uh, they have like these Mortal Kombat type games, except you become a particular character and you feel when you get punched, when you get kicked, you actually are fully in this this world and you have like a real fight. But then of course at the end you're completely fine. It's not you're just playing a game. And so these two old friends, they start uh, playing the game and they're both straight, uh, straight black guys. Um, but in the game, one of the friends decides you know wants to be like a woman uh, like a, mm. a, a kind of a i guess like a white woman and the other one uh, plays like an asian male and so rather than fighting they end up making out and fucking <laughs> and so they develop this right. they're kind of having an affair with each other like in this virtual reality in the game and they're both they're both married and in relationships and stuff like that and it's very interesting because it gets to something similar to the objection that you were raising is that they start to wonder, okay, well, am I actually gay? Am I actually trans? Am I actually, what's going on? And so they they finally put it to the test. And in real life, they kind of, they meet, it's this kind of dramatic moment, and they meet and they decide to try like making out in real life. And when they do, there's absolutely zero um, attraction. There's like zero sparks whatsoever. And, right. and they, I mean, they set they set it up very well so that it's clearly it's not uh, like homophobia or anything like or anything like that. They're they've been very close friends. They were roommates for years. They are very very comfortable with each other and they care about each other a great deal. So it's literally that. I mean, what I found fascinating about it is that the takeaway point is that there's something very embodied about human life and and sexual sexuality that is irreducible. And so it's not as if you can just upload yourself into this virtual reality situation and that there's not going to be things in that situation that are that have nothing to do with real life that are just independent of, of your embodied life. 
Of course not. I mean, even people who, you know, even I once did a piece on Canadian dolls once, like where I went and talked to this, uh, this woman who, uh, was responsible. She owned the, the patent on like the Mounties and Anne of Green Gables and a bunch of other stuff. And she did Canadian dolls, the, um, the, the company that, what are they called? Maple Lee, Maple Lee dolls. And, you know, basically girls buy dolls in their, with their own eye color and their own hair color and their own skin color. Hmm. And, and, and so they produce dolls based on the, those percentages of girls born in the country, right? Wow. Like that's how, that's how they do it. And yeah, the, the human instinct to, uh, be represented in them in their own way is very profound. Right. And, and, you know, and, and, and the digital stuff only makes that worse. It doesn't end it, you know? Uh-huh. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't transform us beyond our ape nature. It just kind of reveals it really. Wow. Well, speaking about ape nature, you, it's, it's almost hard to keep up with how many different things that you write on your, I know it's pretty fascinating. It's fascinating. It's probably I mean, bad for my career. I should probably, you're, uh, you're, you're interested in like fucking everything it's amazing but but anyway you you were hanging out with fairies and refugees maybe you could sort of tell our our listeners about because i think these are two of the most fascinating stories that you have done i mean they're so hard to kind of place within any <laughs> but so right, what are the fairies and the the refugees that you've been hanging well refugee in well particular. which one do you want to talk about first the the, uh, the fun stories of the fairies or the or the hard story of the refugees let's start with the hard story Right. I mean, well, it was just this guy, Babankoa, Mohammed Saidu, who I wanted to tell, you know, the, the refugee story. Like, I think a lot of the press around refugees is really this kind of um, suffering porn. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and for good yep. reason. Like, you know, it's like de- there are dead babies on the uh, American border and there are dead babies on the uh, Turkish coast. And um, and our treatment of refugees is really evil. I mean, I don't think there's another word for it, and I think we will not be forgiven for it. And I think the fact that Canada is now the number one recipient of refugees in the world is um, a testament to the world's failure and also something that we should be um, very profoundly proud of. But, I mean, I wanted to tell one of these stories. You know, I didn't know that, and I'm kind of shocked that I didn't know that. Yeah, not we like it used to be America. I mean, America used to take in ten times the number of refugees of the rest of the world combined. That was like ten years ago, and now they've shrunk to such a point that we're we're number one, um, which is just bizarre. To be honest, it's bizarre um, because we're so far away from any major crisis, really. Uh, although that that might be changing too. Um, but it, yeah, so I wanted to tell the story of like one of these journeys and how heroic they are really. And, uh, Babankoa for sure lived that kind of heroic narrative. I mean, I won't retell the whole story, but he basically took well, t- tell enough just so that they understand from, that we're talking about something out of like Homer's Odysseus or it's, yeah, the Odyssey. I mean, he was it's from Ghana. He was from Ghana. And, you know, there were uh, many people do, there are other people who do this route. I mean, I talked to several people who, who went from, who, who took buses from Kenya down to South, South Africa and then across to Brazil and then up the continent to Canada. 
I mean, one guy I talked to, I, I wanted to interview because, but I couldn't because he was working in a diamond mine in the Northwest Territories. And I was like, oh my God, this man is, he's gone from Kenya to South Africa to Brazil and then from Brazil up to the Northwest Territories. I mean, unbelievable. Bob, Bob and Koa's journey is from Brazil, where he was a professional soccer player, to Ecuador and then by buses and bikes and swimming and walking um, up through the Darien Gap, which is this area in between Panama and Colombia that's essentially, um, you know, not like there are no roads and it, it is the, it is extreme jungle. And, you know, if his friends die in his arms there and he's attacked by howler monkeys and through, and then into prison at Adelanto prison, which is a kind of notorious prison, private jail in, uh, in California, uh, until he's released and then up, and then in, into Canada, where you know his first experience of cold ever in his life is um, you know the 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 area between Minnesota and Manitoba uh, in December, right? Like this is the first time he's ever really known cold, and so right, and it, it is this unbelievable journey uh, that requires sort of extreme endurance. And extreme, and also, you know, I think when we think about refugees, it's often like um, they're making choices or something like that. There, there was never any choice in Bob and Coe's story. Like he's not—he's just driven strict, strictly by physical fear. Yeah, right. Like and he could not it, go it, back to Ghana because uh, because he's gay, and he was found out. He was discovered. At, yeah, I mean, the story began. He's discovered by a football manager in uh, in Kushuma in Brazil in bed with a guy and you know, his father disowns him within a few days and you know, he cannot, he, he cannot go back to Ghana in any, uh, at all. Right. He'll, he'll just be killed. And, and so it's, um, and so he's on the run. He's basically on the run and he has no money and he has, he's trusting people. But I mean, you, you he's trying to figure out who to trust, who not to trust. Um, and, you know, it's one of those sort of incredible uh, journeys where, you know, I think one of the things is I really love to travel and I really love to, you know, I've been to Africa and I've been all over Asia and I've been all over, um, you know, Europe and North America and South America. But, you know, I only see a part of life there, right? Like, ultimately, you're staying in hotels. Um, you're with educated people. You know, when you talk to people, you're talking to educated people much like yourself. And the, and, and the world has shorten in that way and so even when you want to see the world you don't really see the world well he's seen the world yeah you know he has seen he, he has seen what it means to be a human uh in the 21st century and and so that that was the kind of story that i wanted to tell just in the most kind of direct linear way yeah it, you know in my in my sort of dream life i imagine well first of all i will post uh, links to the articles that we're mentioning here, but I, I encourage all the listeners to go and read this uh, account that that Stephen Marsh has told. It, it's just absolutely amazing. And it, it one thing everybody I've sent the article to, almost everybody I've sent it to, they've said this needs to be a movie. I mean, like yeah. you, you have to write a screenplay about this, and it needs because it's so cinematic when you're reading it. Like you can just imagine all of the the terrain that he's going over. It's it's it would make a, yeah. a, a harrowing, sort of beautiful, moving a kind of a twenty first century retelling of of the Odyssey or something. I did have to interview him for about fifteen hours to get 
I mean, because it was to get that kind of sense was actually very, I wanted that kind of filmic sense. And, you know, you get this guy telling this story and, you know, it takes like four hours just to hear the basic, like, then I went here, then I went to this town, then I went to there. And then you're, and then when you're running, you're like, okay, so you get off the, you get off the border in Mexico and you go to the other side, there's a man on a horse. Um, what color was the horse? <laughs> what was yeah. the man wearing? What was it like? Was he wearing a hat? Um, yeah. how tall was he? Like, um, <laughs> you know, like, that, that's I, one of the things I really love about your writing is that you have this kind of almost like Darwinian, like, and by that, I mean, Charles Darwin, like the, this specificity. So, you know, in your story about the fairies, the fairy codfrits, you, you mentioned exactly the birds and the trees and like the bird songs and stuff. And so I can picture it. And if I can't, I can go online and look up that bird and hear what its song sounds like. And you recreate with a kind of a precision that I really, really like. And it's, uh, I, that's what I think gives the stories the, the cinematic quality is the well, specificity you know, we, rather than like think, cliches. Yeah, I mean that I wanted to put people in his place. Right. Yeah. Because like, and I think a lot of people like you can't really imagine the sufferings of a four year old child who's been driven from Syria and then drowned on the coast of, uh, Turkey. Like that's just kind of unimaginable suffering. Um, but you know, I think you absolutely can imagine something like Bob and Koa, what happened to Bob and Koa happening to you. Oh, absolutely. Or happening to, you know, right. Like, it's not like, it's not like this is like beyond the fate of any of us. Like, and, and, and I also think like he, it's very rare for me to actually find people that I just consider outright heroic Mm -hmm. and, and he, he definitely fit that bill. For for reasons that probably have to do with Canada as much as anything, you know, like yeah. just just the encounter with the landscape, the encounter with, um, with 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 the forces of power, like just the, the mere survival uh, of it. It's just so extraordinary. Yeah, I think if more people heard about his story in particular, and others like them, I think public support for accepting more refugees would go way up. And, you know, yeah, and, I'm kind of, and I'm kind of scandalized because I'm, I'm a pretty well-informed person, generally speaking. And I, I'm surprised that I didn't know. I'm going to ask a lot of people in the next day or two if, if I'm just an outlier here. But I'm surprised that I didn't know that Canada's the biggest recipient of refugees right now. Like, everybody should know that. That should be, that should be part of Trudeau's yeah. election campaign that they should be mentioning that yes they should be you know shouting this from the rooftops because you know if sheer gets in fuck that that that's gonna end too pretty quick apologizing i mean can you imagine a conservative with a 3.7 percent annual growth rate the year before an election i mean like what are they doing <laughs> like what, it's just bizarre to me but i mean you know american canadian progressives are just unbelievably good at you know Looking over the mountaintop and shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, yeah, it's just, but everybody it, should it's be, always everybody should be shouting this from the rooftops. Like this is a wonderful gain that's happened, and it's happened under this government. And right now, we are like a moral beacon in the world on this score. And yeah. if we change governments right now, we can virtually guarantee that this is going to stop. Yes, and for no uh, reason. Yeah, right. Which is like it's up. not like, like for no. It, it's not like we're out of control of our immigration system. 
We're really not. Like, you know, there's challenges, of course. But, like, you know, it's not... Like, I mean, I think we, we, we tend to overrate our, like it's, our compassion is really overrated. Like, you know, I, I, I did one of those refugee families from Syria, uh, with my poker group. And I mean, that guy was like a dentist. His wife was a pharmacist. They came over. I mean, the guy was driving a better car than me in a year. He's a taxpaying <laughs> city. Six well, that's months. not hard. You're a writer. I mean, like, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but it, it was really one of those things where it was like, well, yeah, this is not like, you know, Germany had a million people arrive in a week, right? In 2015, like yeah. this is that's a very different scenario than what we're dealing with, right? Yeah, and it didn't work out very well for Germany. No, it, well, there, it was I, they overdid it's, it. <laughs> so. It's just incredible. That that's just a real challenge, right? Yeah. Like bringing in fifty thousand people who are all married with families or, or that are just families. That's a very different thing. Yeah, we've actually through our through our church, we've also sponsored a number of uh, Syrian families to come in, and uh, it's yeah. They, in general, they just seem like really, really stable, fantastic people <coughs> who've had a difficult situation, right? I mean, because Syria is not, it's not like a you know what you imagine like a really destitute third world country. They they have universities, they have lots of. It's basically like a. I don't know. It maybe like an, an Eastern European country that has been torn apart by war and bad leadership, but it's not. You know, it's not as if the people are living in in these seriously, seriously destitute conditions. It's yeah, or that yeah. they can't integrate into Canadian society. I mean, it's not yeah, whatever that might mean. Anymore. But <laughs> well, yeah, it's you know that it definitely. Definitely is 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 very different situation, and I agree with you. It's something we should be proud of. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna do everything I can in the next, you know, week or two to tell everybody about this. I, I did because I'm actually I'm, I'm uh, helping a friend of mine who's running a liberal candidate uh, campaign, and you know, I'm doing door to doors with her, like campaigning with her and stuff like that. And I I didn't know this was a thing. I mean, I'm gonna tell every going? single door we go to now that this is a really great reason to, to vote liberal, but, uh, how brutal is it going door to door? How brutal? Um, well, I guess it, it sort of depends, I think on your, it it depends largely on your personality. I mean, that's, that's been my experience because I've I've been doing campaigning for various, for most of my adult life. Um, and it's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's basically if you're like a super extroverted person uh like like me like a total show off <laughs> like, it's easy uh but if you're if you're more of a an introverted person if you're a little more on the shy side it's really hard it's brutal like it's absolutely right. horrible and so you can see that the political candidates that are good at retail politics they're almost always um either people like uh like the friend of mine that I'm campaigning for, Kimberly Manning, or or people like Justin Trudeau, uh, who just genuinely are just these super super nice people that kind of like love everybody, or sociopaths. Right. Like that's the two kinds of right. like political candidates. And I've seen. And by the way, that it doesn't seem to be in any particular political party. I've seen this among the NDP, sure. among the yeah. among the Green Party, among the Liberals, among the Conservatives. It's just the people who are good at retail politics are 
are people that are, yeah, they're either just like incredibly extroverted and, and like everybody or they're sociopaths. Most right. normal people are not good at meeting with that many people. It's I just absolutely my, it would overwhelming. Be you what? It would be, it would be my version of hell. Yeah. Well, it, it really would be like, I mean, it would be in, infernal. Yeah. Going door to door and having to be nice to people. I think most people, oh. I think most people find it, um, just like, I remember this one, it's just like, you know, a long time ago, early, my early twenties, but I remember going campaigning with this one guy and incredibly, you know, he, he's, he's like one of the best people I know, like in terms of like a human being, like ethically and everything. And we did about two and a half hours of it. And at one point he literally like stumbled and threw up in a garbage can. <laughs> and he said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Oh, wow. And he just like, he just went home. He's like, I can't do this anymore. It was so completely traumatizing right. uh, to him because he's just, you know, and th that, I gotta say that, that has always disturbed me. That's always disturbed right. me that, that I think our our political our political system is the best one that humans have come up with thus far, despite yeah. all of its flaws. But it has yeah. some serious fucking flaws. And one of them is that to be able to be successful in our political system, you have to be either you have to be fundamentally aberrant. Like you have to be right. like an abnormal type of person. Like for instance, I, I think I think Sasha Trudeau, um, I'm probably going to make some enemies saying this, but, um, but like, um, I think Sasha Trudeau would make a phenomenal prime minister. I think he would right. be uh, significantly, and I, you know, I'm friends with him and I like him, but like, I think he would be a, a, f a better um, prime minister than his brother. There, I said it. Okay, fine. Yeah. Bridges burned. Um but he's just, he's like you. He, he's just like kind of a private person for the most part. Right. He just wants to hang out with his, most of the time he just wants to hang out with his wife and his kids and he just wants to be at home quietly. Uh, he just, yes. he, he, he absolutely, he'd be the one throwing up in a garbage can after yeah. doing retail politics. He just could not do it. Like, uh, and that, that worries me because there's a lot of people I would really like to see in politics that, can't do it right? well yeah i mean it's a self-selecting group right like it's always but i mean that's always been true like it's you know you you i guess yeah like it's this is why plato really hated democracy yes right like it, you know it, it's it's built for actors it's built for people who are out you know it's built for people who are out there rather yeah. than people who think about things but it you know i mean well, this is a perfect segue into the one of the other things I want to talk to you about. I got to rush right. you through because I know I only have you till one thirty. Uh, but so you've made this uh, rather kind of scandalous claim on numerous occasions. Most recently, um, in an article, how how showbiz uh, destroyed democracy. Uh, but so you said that basically to win in this day and age, you need to be a celebrity. So what yeah. do you mean by that? Well. I think one thing that we're starting to realize in the in the conditions of mass media in the 21st century, which we I don't think we've really fully appreciated how profound a change that is, is that the ordinary rules of political discourse have essentially altered completely. 
and it's had different effects on the different parties. Um, but you know, we are not in a place anymore where, uh, the old rules apply and, uh, you know, Trump is the greatest example of that, but so is Boris Johnson. And, um, so is the results in the Ukraine. And so are the results in Canada where essentially you have, uh, ma- people who control attention, people who control mass media. Um, I mean, in the Ukraine, literally a parody prime minister, who, a person who played a prime minister on a parody show on television becomes prime minister, right? And uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that literally, like it's, it's I mean, that, that did happen, right? Um, and you, and you also see it in Italy as well. Um, and in, and in other European countries, but in, in Boris Johnson is actually a really perfect example of it too, where you have someone who's just so entertaining. He's entertained himself into power and that's, and that's what Trump has done. And I think, you know, it sounds so weird when you say it, but when you look where we are, um, it's literally true everywhere that, the, the, that what matters now is the capacity to, to command attention and also to avoid um, any 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 restrictions on the image of the politician, and so that's why things like scandal don't matter anymore, and yeah. approval approval ratings don't matter anymore, and and the, and the horse race politics that consumes so much. Like you go on, I mean, I watch CNN for or the Sunday talk shows, and I'm like, what? I don't understand what you guys are talking about. I mean, you're talking as if we're in 1978, (laughs) you know, it's not like it's, that's all gone. Like it's all, it's all gone. Um, like Trump is like inspires mass killers in synagogues and has a town named after him in Israel. Like that's not (laughs) supposed to be possible. Yeah. You, you mentioned in your article, you said that if the Democrats were, were running a candidate like Oprah or the rock, this whole problem of trying to sort of appeal to the base and then also appeal to the middle wouldn't be a problem. That it's basically yeah, they, once you have yeah. once you have celebrity, then you basically have the middle, most of the middle by default, and then you can appeal to the base as much as you want. Well, I don't think it's even that technical. I think that the thing about celebrities is that they they occupy multiple points of meaning at the same time. And, and, and that's why they're capable of commanding so much attention. Right. And, and they the attention that they, that they control is, um, that's what, that's what matters. You know, mm-hmm. that's why I actually, don't, I, that's why I actually don't think that, um, the current Canadian election is going to be all that interesting and why, like, I'm not even bothering to write about it. I mean, I could be proven wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but, um, you know, Andrew Shear cannot take a photograph where he doesn't look like he's sweating and, and, and that's saying nothing against him as a person. I mean, it really, yeah. it really isn't. It's not taking anything against him as a person or as a, or as a leader or as, or as a thinker and anything like that. It's simply that he's not really capable of image manufacturer and certainly not on anywhere near the level of Justin Trudeau. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean the, the one question that is interesting is whether, um, these celebrities are kind of self-defeating whether they, they, they create because celebrity does tend to wane and does tend to, to collapse on itself. 
um, whether that will transfer to the political sphere. But, you know, I, I think it is going to take one more cycle for the Democrats to realize, like, you know, there's no you don't you don't run Elizabeth Warren. Like Elizabeth Warren is obviously who should be running the country. Yeah. But you don't you don't you don't run her as a leader. You run the rock as a leader. And then he listens to to Elizabeth uh, Warren. Yeah. I mean, it and is ultimately that's the very way this bad, is going to work. Right. It is ultimately very bad for democracy. Like I, I remember uh, when I was a teenager for a number of years, I was a member of a Pentecostal church and the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada had an institutional policy, which was very disruptive to pastors and their wives and their families. But they they put it in place uh, where they had they rotated pastors out of particular churches. So if you were teaching or if you were preaching uh, at a church in Edmonton, you were allowed to, it's almost like term limits for American presidents. Like you were allowed uh, to stay at that particular church for a certain amount of time. I can't remember exactly what it was. I think it was um, something like, um, it was like eight or eight or 12 years. And then they would rotate you to another church. And the reason was that the problem of celebrity became that when you had one person there, they could very easily become develop a kind of a cult like following, and then right. you would it would start to mess with with the church. And the the problem was is that when the person leaves, the whole church falls apart. Like, and so their model, their sort of business model, uh, institutional model was when you, if let's say your church has a regular Sunday morning attendance of eight hundred, when you change pastors, it should stay eight hundred. If it dips, it should just dip a little bit, you know, maybe to 600 or 700. If it leaves, if it drops down to like nothing uh, after that pastor leaves, well, then they were all there for that pastor and they weren't there for the message and they weren't actually, you know, this is the problem. So if you have increasingly political parties based on celebrity, I think there's a danger you might run into that kind of a situation. You know what I mean? Like, well, I think more to the point, like, the uh in political terms anyway there's no they don't no policy is not really relevant i mean you this has already happened in america like when you go to america and listen to a political rally no one ever discusses policy mm -hmm. they it's big it's socialism it's god it's build a wall like it's if mexico's gonna pay for the wall i mean what does that mean like what are you talking about <laughs> right like it doesn't yeah. mean anything yeah, there's that one point in your article where you talk, which was very amazing, where you, you talk about ta Coates sitting there and, you know, producing all this viral content on how we need to have reparations and dressing down Mitch McConnell. And while he's saying that, there are kids in cages at the border and there are all these like, and it's just, it's constantly like pie in the sky, whether it's coming from the left or the right or the center. It's There's no actual connection to reality like how are we going to do this like don't get me wrong like that that's a that's a great idea like th that much like our pursuit of reconciliation that's like a, a generational struggle that is very much worth it like and, and and very important but you know like at the same time like they don't have a they're they're not together enough to hire a secretary of defense right yeah like so, so the basic problems facing America are so intense and so enormous that 
um, you know, reparations as important as they are. And as, as, as like, I, I'm not really being critical of that idea or, or even of the desire of it, but like, who do you think is going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it, it, when I read that part of your article, I, I immediately thought of, um, a friend of mine who has struggled with some pretty serious mental health problems over the years, but she has, um, when she's in a really manic phase, she has like severe delusions of grandeur. And she, uh, to give you a kind of an amazing example of this, this totally true story, sad. Um, she once sent me the text of an acceptance speech for the Nobel prize that she had just written. Right. Okay. And yeah. she sent me, she asked me to proofread it. It was an ex, it was her oh. acceptance speech for winning the Nobel Prize. And this is from somebody who was uh, a high school dropout who had just started doing adult ed and wanted to go into doing an undergrad in sciences. Right. right? So she was already, like, so far ahead of herself that she's winning the Nobel Prize and is writing her acceptance speech. Right. Right. And... and when I read that part of your article, I thought yeah, everybody's doing that now. Everybody's just like so far ahead of themselves. And like, there's all this like grunt work that has to happen in the intervening years. But I, I think in America, the point is there is no grunt work to do anymore. Like I think in Canada, we're, we're actually pretty like, you know, I read an interesting piece about what, about why there hasn't been quite the same amount of campus uh, activism in Canada as in America. Like there just was not the same, radical turn of like we're gonna boo people out of like that that really didn't happen to anywhere near the same extent in canada and the explanation was like well if you want to run for office and you're and you're a canadian student like join the ndp you could be an mp there was like a you know a girl working at a bar in montreal who was like an mp three years later like it's if you want to actively get involved in changing the policy of your country in canada it's possible to do in america there's nobody can do anything like the system is like Elizabeth Warren's car, has all these great policies. Absolutely irrelevant. Like it, it's in such a state of seizure that you may as well like talk about dreams because mm-hmm. it's, there, there's no, there's no actual way to get to any real policy, you know? Yeah. Like there, there's no way to get to any real discussion of like, let's do X, let's do Y. I mean, and if you were the first thing you would do is say like, well, why don't we stop imprisoning children at the border? Well, how are you like even that is totally intractable. This like extreme moral catastrophe. Like how are you supposed to deal with that? Like you obviously have agencies that are extremely problematic at the core. Well, what are you supposed to do with them? You know? Yeah. And, and and like no one no one really knows. Like no one really knows. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some people that are, you know, to use your expression, totally escaping into dreams, which is these fairies that you were hanging out with. And yes, they, I mean, these are people who, I guess, are looking at the horror of of our current situation and just sort of escaping into like a, a fantasy world that turns out to be really kind of sweet, right? I mean, wh- what was that like? Well, I would not say they were. I mean, I don't think they were that conscious in it. I think they actually just believed in fairies, right? Like they, uh, like they, there was a certain amount of, um, delusion there as well, but they, they just kind of believed in them. So, yeah, I mean, they were, they, they were really great to go and see. It was just such a different 
you know, I've been going around America working on this, as you know, this book on like the possibility of civil war for the United States. And yes, um, it's like extremely depressing and um, extremely hard to deal with. So I wanted to see something, you know, the great liberate the, the liberation of America, like the, 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 the real thing that you can believe in what you want to believe. Um, I wanted to see a version of that that did not end in, you know, why don't we not have paper money or yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, sovereign citizens, right? Like mm-hmm. something, something that's just a little more cheerful than that. And like so you didn't yeah, want to go to another gun show. <laughs> I want to go to another gun show or like just the, just, you know, I didn't want to talk to somebody else about like how, how incapable basic features of government are anymore. Um, in the United States, which I, I think really is happening pretty, pretty drastically. Like I think things that we would have once assumed were just, you know, inevitable in a civilized society, like that everyone would agree on, they, they can't really agree on anymore. And it's, it's hard to watch, you know? So mm. the fairies provided me with a really nice break and they were surprised. It's the most beautiful part of the country that I've seen. That little that little part of the eastern Cascades. You described it so it's beautifully. Stun- oh. It is stunningly beautiful. That, that it's like it's like BC but dry, like almost deserty. Mm-hmm. Incredible, just so so beautiful. Yeah, I wonder if you could have that. You know, this is something I've always I've always thought, and I thought about this when I was reading your your novel. Um, also, right, that Hunger of the Wolf. That that the the whole idea of like, how can you have an ideology of nature as being this beautiful kind of grandma who just wants to give you a hug? Like, you can have it in the Cascades. I don't know if you can have it when you are crossing the border into Manitoba in the middle of the no. winter. I don't know if you, you can't can even have, have it that. in Quebec. Yeah, no, you can't have it here. Like, the hippies don't have that attitude here. I don't think if you're going through that thick piece of jungle between Panama and I don't think you can have that idea of as nature as this benign wonderful grandma yeah. who just wants to make you some cookies and give you a big hug and you know like it seems yeah. like it's a it's an ideology that requires that first you sort of like throw in Walden like first you sort of like kill off all the big predators that can eat you and then you vastly sort of like uh, domesticate the landscape and then you can do that. Right. And then well, you no, can, I mean, it's odd. Cause there's like, you know, the, the fairies really come from England. Like that's, that's what, that's where all this comes from. And I mean, it was upsetting. Like 44% of English people believe they have seen fairies personally. Right. Wow. So, um, and you know, like, of course, when you go to England, they don't really have wilderness. Right. Like that's why you meet these hikers in the Canadian Rockies. You probably find them in northern Quebec, too, where they're just totally unprepared for the landscape. They just have no idea. They just have, you know, they're just wandering around like Baffin Island in like flip flops. And it's like, no, no, no. There's not a, there's not a pub. It's not a pub at the end of the road here, buddy. Like this is the wilderness. It wants to kill you. Yes. Like actively. it actively wants to kill you yeah. and unless you were really prepared. Yeah. It is going to kill you. The same thing happens in Australia all the time. They find these English people wandering around the bush and it's like, uh, no. So that's a, you know, it's very easy to see why they believe in fairies because their version of nature is gardens. Yes. Right. And, um, it's a one giant you know, public park. 
basically. But the other thing is like Iceland. Now, I mean, everything in Iceland is an exception, but you know, it's a relatively brutal landscape. And of course they believe in fairies so much that, um, urban planners have to take into account, uh, fairy, fairy, you know, fairy places. Are you right? serious? Oh yeah. They've built, they, I they, had no they, idea. Yes. Yes. They, they've moved roads, uh, around places where gnomes live and things like oh this. Oh my but God. In Iceland, they very much believe in fairies, like in a very, you know, this is like, these are Norse people. And they, the government believes in, you know, but so, and I don't think they're, that, that seems to me a much more, that's much more like our landscape, like brutal. Yeah. And, and not, and not, uh, and you know, the kind of landscape that can kill you. Yes. But, yeah. I mean, I like, so I, I think that there's, there's also, you know, there's also a bunch of different kinds of fairies. Um, you know, I think they're also like, you know, the, the fairies are originally like, they're this haunted, uh, you know, a lot of the fairy stones and stuff in England and the things that are associated with the fairies, especially in Scotland and Ireland are the remainders of the pits, right? So they're the, of like the, the Aboriginal people of, Ireland and Wales and Scotland who were massacred by the Angles and the Saxons and, you know, the, and the, and the like Anglo-Saxons, one of those weird things where people are, think of it as this form of racial purity, but you know, it's like the most, uh, conquered Island ever, like bloodstreams are mixed up. So it's like, it's like a little leftover of this, of this ancient people, um, in these, in these places. And, you know, I think that that's also a, um, a source of its power, which, which, you know, they don't really have in the Cascades because, you know, they don't really, you know, there are nature spirits there. They belong to the crow and the crow have been moved on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so that, that's a whole other, a whole other aspect to it. Well, do you think the fairies can ever, you know, cause Islam, Buddhism, Christianity are all, uh, in very obvious ways can be mobilized politically and can have a political valence in, in different ways but like do you get the sense that that these kinds of sort of new agey kind of hippie fairy stuff do you think it it could ever have any kind of consequences for for political life outside of the little the little group well i think you know what i discovered in it is that it's essentially a form of resistance to the network right like it's a resistance to um plastic surgery as a way of life in your body it's a resistance to um capitalism which takes nature just simply as a commodity to be consumed rather than as distinct entities to be appreciated and that i find very powerful um you know i mean the thing that's upsetting of course is that it's all based on nonsense right uh but but what you know, religion isn't? Well, yes, that's I mean, exactly transubstantiation. True. I mean, when I when I look at like your article on fairies, I just think, well, I mean, if this somehow was, took off and became really, really successful, it would just be religion. <laughs> it would just be. I mean, what, what's well, that sure wonderful definition off, Joseph Campbell had stuff. of mythology? He said, uh, "Mythology is other people's religion." Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, doubting who led the RAF during the Battle of Britain, he wrote the foreword to the major texts of, of fairydom that are that animate this, 
Unbelievable. Right. I, right. I, yeah. That just blows my mind. I know. It was really one of those things when I read about it, I was like, oh, that's really upsetting. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, I guess, you know, all your favorite people, like they all believe stuff that you think is insane. Like that's yes. part of yeah. that, that that's part of like Graham Greene, you know, was like not just a Catholic, he was like magical Catholic, like you know, the, 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 it wasn't just the theology that attracted him, or the or the it was like blood is being turned, wine is being turned into blood that he was obsessed with. Right? Yeah. You know, well, well, I um, guess the the question I always have, and I had this throughout when I was reading that piece of yours, is uh, my friend Nassim Nichols Taleb. He he always says, you know, you got to separate because he made all of his money on as a trader, and he said one of the ways that you make money in trading is you have to. Look, differentiate between what he calls cheap talk and what people really believe. Like, so, and you have to differentiate between those two. So he says, you know, it, it's one thing to believe in fairies or to believe in angels or to believe in these things. But when your kid gets hit by a car and they've got a compound fracture and the bone's sticking out of the snow pants, mm. do you call 911 or do you? you know, lay on hands and in the name of Jesus, you know, and do you start like praying or like call on the fairies or, yeah. or get your crystals or do you fucking call 911 like everybody else? And he said, well, actually most people call 911. And in so doing, they demonstrate that in that particular domain, most of what they're saying is cheap talk. Now that doesn't mean it's not important in other ways, you know, but it mm -hmm. means that like, I mean, the, the most famous study I saw of this was uh, a couple of years ago where they actually took all these people who were like self-identified as very fundamentalist believers of different stripes mm -hmm. of uh, Sunni Muslims and Pentecostal Christians. There was a few others. And they strapped them up to lie detector tests and asked them if they really believed in things like transubstantiation and the virgin birth and heaven. And what they found is that a, a surprising percentage of people who self-identify as like very religious don't actually believe the stuff that they say. But isn't that great? It I is. Mean, but it also mean it means that you have to um yeah, no, I'm not saying it's it's bad or, or good. It I think what it says is that those people are getting something out of the fairy conference or out of the fairy experience or out of the Christian experience or the Islamic experience. They're getting something out of the experience that cannot be reduced to, you know, Sam Harris style to silly beliefs. Well, I mean, do you know what I mean? You know, well, I certainly know that I would take a hypocrite over a true believer any day. <laughs> Me I too. Mean, like any for any task, <laughs> yes. or, or or just to be in my life. Mm -hmm. Like I mean, I think one of the things is that when you're a real human being in the real world and an adult, um, you know that you don't really know very much at all. Yes, and uh, and that your your experience of the universe is very partial indeed, right? Like very very small, and you need these stories to make sense of it, but that all, but also that you know that these stories are not true. This, it seems to me is like the core achievement of modernity that we get to that point that we're able to like, you know, my, my son just had a bar mitzvah, right? Mm -hmm. now, that was very powerful, extremely powerful for me, even though I'm not Jewish and it was extremely powerful for my wife. And, 
um, you know, one of the things that I love about Judaism is that they make them read this passage in Hebrew singing uh, to be, prove they're an adult, and then they tell them to challenge it. And that's just, <laughs> it's so genius. Yeah. It's so brilliant. Yeah. It's like, it's like, here's the stuff, not only do you have to know it, you have to know it in the original, you have to be able to sing it in this trope that you'll never use again in the rest of your life. Yeah. Then you have to be, read all these commentaries about it. Then we want you to disagree with it. Amazing. Which is I mean, how the, you prove that you are a man. Well, yeah, and the, the, it's all, but also this is how you should think about things. Like, it's not like the Bible is useless or that any mythology is useless or that the fairies are useless. They're not useless. But if you, you, you have to be able to have a place in your mind where you, you understand that you're taking these things as a narrative and, and, and running them in your life not, and not that you have the whole story because you don't. Yeah. Right. And that, and that the things that are, um, that are true are, are true, are only ever true only in part. Yeah. Like this, this is the only way to live in a real society. And I mean, I guess you can call that like, you know, not taking, not understanding this or what, what was your friend's term? No, what was Taleb's term? It was like, He's called cheap you don't talk. have skin in the game or something like that. Like, well, actually, you know, you, his, his whole you're, thing you're is really just yeah. saying like, okay. This is what this is my belief, but the but you know that 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 necessary hypocrisy is actually like being able to understand your own position in relation to the information that you have. Yeah. Like <laughs> anyway, so yeah, talking about being embodied, right? Uh, so, um, so yeah, no, I think what you were just saying, and the the reference to Taleb's ideas. Taleb says that the most one of the most beautiful expressions in any language, and he speaks like, you know, 10 languages, is just one of the most beautiful expressions in any language is God knows, right? Which is right. This just fundamental expression. And people say it that don't even believe in God. It, it, what it means is like a epistemic humility. It's an expression of, of the fact that like, there's just so much shit that we have no, we don't understand. We don't have any access to it. And regularly acknowledging that, and and that leading to sort of humility and curiosity is essential to grown up life. Well, right? all I know is that I would rather have the fundamentalist who takes his kid to a doctor <laughs> rather than the fundamentalist who doesn't. Yeah, you know. And I think that the fundamentalist who takes his kid to the doctor, we're all kind of in that position. Yes. we all kind of have our crazy beliefs that we then you know, when push comes to shove, have to reevaluate. But, you know, I don't think we're never going to graduate from that. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's our condition. Yeah. No, it's, I love uh, the New York philosopher, Aaron Haspel. He, he has this wonderful uh, aphorism where he says that most of what we call sanity is a person's unwillingness to take their beliefs to their logical conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, I really think like ambiguity really is the sign of an evolved mind. Right. Well, and, and you are a, a deeply, deeply ambiguous writer, and I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Always and a I'm, uh, yeah, and I really would like to uh, talk again sometime in the next few months and, and talk specifically about the other book that you're you're working on, the one book on the uh, potential for an American, a second American Civil War, but also the book that you're working on on celebrity, which I just think. 
I, I have a very strong feeling this is going to be the book that you're remembered for, you know, two centuries from now when you get it done. Because I think it's. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, have a wonderful day and thank you for okay. coming on the podcast. And we'll, we'll talk, talk again soon. All okay. Right. Take care. Thanks. Bye.